You're listening to What's New with Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far-off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Spoken Edition of Wired. What Silicon Valley Got Wrong About the 2016 Election by the Wired Staff Whatever your politics, whatever your background, whatever your news sources, it seems fair to say that not many people saw the 2016 election ending this way, including, it appears, the guy who won the thing. Which leads us to a somewhat complicated question. What the... How did... Are you, did they, what? Or more helpfully, how did everyone get this so wrong? For the second episode of Wired.gov, Deputy Editor Adam Rogers put that question to Tony Blinken, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, and to Chamath Palahapatiya, a former Facebook exec and currently the CEO and founder of Social Capital. Then there's the more pressing issue of what happens now. How can Silicon Valley do its part to help all of America, not just the founders who sold to Google? What responsibility do tech companies have to the greater good, and how does one define that? And just how much money is too much money? These are the questions people will spend the next four years and more answering. But a few days after the election, while feelings are still raw and the future seems uncertain, feels like a good time to start. Welcome to the Wired.gov podcast. I'm Adam Rogers um, from the aforementioned Wired, uh, and we're sitting in Silicon Valley now with uh, Tony Blinken, Deputy Secretary of State, and Chamath Palihapitiya, the um, founder of Social Capital, a VC firm here, um, to talk about, gosh, a whole lot of stuff because the election just happened. I know that, Tony, for you, I know that we can't talk about who you were supporting because that's <laughs> legal, but I, I, but I do, I feel like I want to start, and it's going to be relevant to what we want to talk about, with just... To, just to ask, guys, what, guys, <laughs> what, uh, that was a surprise. Um, regardless of who anybody was uh, was supporting, the, the, the outcome was unexpected. And so what I wonder if you could do is tell me what you think was the, the structure of the surprise. Like, what didn't people see? Because I think it has to do with, Tony, why you come to Silicon Valley and Chamath, what you are doing here. So that's what I want to get to in a second. But like, so what did, well, what, I would, what did I would, you say? I would frame the answer as like, actually, your question is actually the most important one. And I think that there are symptoms and then there are root causes. Um, 
the symptom of, of how this was so unexpected on both sides, I think, is just that we live in this hyper-tribal information society. And so I think what happens is that there's this over-amplification of one's own signal, A, and then B, there's fewer and fewer opportunities for us to really spend time in ways that actually confront your core beliefs. Um, and I think that's particularly true, frankly, for the more liberal, elite, democratic people in the world because they live in a framework where generally life is plus or minus trended more positively and better, particularly over like the last eight or nine years after what was probably the most existential shock economically in the United States since the Great Depression. And I think what we forgot is that it left behind enormous amounts of very good, honest people. So that's, I think, a symptom. But I think the root cause was just a complete underappreciation of just the economic malaise um, that exists. And the problem is you can't look at data anymore. The polls are worthless. The pundits are frankly worthless. Um, the unemployment rate that we use is probably worthless. Every single measure that we've tried to use to, to basically get at this problem told a completely different story than what was actually happening on the ground in a lot of really like middle of the road places. And to me, that is just like, that just speaks to a, a structural failure in the entire system that now we have to confront and address. So it does, that, that does suggest a, a place where, where technology as an industry can start to think about better indicators potentially. But, 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 when, but when you talk about that, that over-amplification of, of personal signal, that thing that happens when we get into a, our own um, informational bubbles, both sides of this election were in their own informational bubbles, right? And they were using the same they were using the same technology to to do it. There have been some really interesting stories about what mm -hmm. Facebook does and how the See, algorithm. But, but again, I think <clears throat> I think when you use when you say the word both sides, this is my point. This was like Tony and I were speaking about this earlier, but this is no longer a left and right thing. This was an up and down thing, <clears throat> and so there's no concept of a side anymore. And so you have these entire cohorts of people that became aligned around socioeconomic messages. And this is why I think like when you when you say, how did we ever not see this? It's because, and why is it so painful, for example, for the left who feel like they were just completely caught off guard and they, and they had the sort of wind taken out of their cells? Because they are probably the ones if confronted with the socioeconomic reality of what was happening, would probably have tried to find a more empathetic, compassionate way of figuring out how to deal with it. And so I think like this is, so when you when you look at sort of the maybe like the fear and the resentment and the betrayal they feel underneath that actually is the fact that they literally did not even have access i think and partly it's their fault uh to the information that allowed them to really even unpack what was going on yeah i've got to say i'm in i'm in violent agreement with shamath uh pretty much across the board i think what we saw in this election uh was a total breakdown in the frame that we've applied uh, in the past to elections and to our politics. And as Shamath said, it is no longer left-right, Democrat-Republican, liberal-conservative. Uh, it is uh, broken down much more uh, along the lines of confronted with the challenges that we all know. Um, do you want to take, continue to take this open approach that's trying to build connections and build bridges? Or, and I do not mean this at all in a pejorative sense, is the answer to the problems that people are confronting to hunker down uh, and, and build walls. And so some of the issues that were driving this election, again, were not along a left-right axis, whether it's immigration, uh, whether it's trade, whether it's just a general sense of identity, 
uh, as well as a sense of confusion and chaos that's out there, ironically, perhaps because there's so much more information that people have access to on a regular basis. That is what is driving people, I think, into a different response. And a big part of the problem has been that uh, these two communities are not talking to each other. They're talking, at best, they're talking past each other. And they're not listening to each other. For those of us who are in the bridge building camp uh, and on the foreign policy side of the ledger, people who believe in the international system that we helped build 70 years ago based on norms and rule of law and institutions, um, we're, uh, we've been, I think, missing, uh, missing the picture and not seeing how too many of our fellow citizens feel left behind or left out. And the great paradox of the moment that we're living, and Jamath alluded to this, is that when you look at this in the aggregate, when you look at the big picture, arguably there's never been a better time in human history. Uh, people in the aggregate, not just in the United States, but even around the world, are a little bit safer, a little bit wealthier, a little bit wiser, a little bit healthier than they've ever been. And if you're born today, um, you probably stand a better chance than at any other time in history in being uh, born into, relatively speaking, better condition. And yet, there are huge groups of uh, people who feel or actually are left out of that line of progression. Uh, and, and, by, and by the way, this now transcends uh, borders. Yep. This is not an American thing. This started in Tunisia. I mean, we all forget, but like the Arab Spring was never really about uh, political issues. It was socioeconomic. That person, that the, 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 the fruit cart vendor that, that lit himself on fire was basically making a protest around socioeconomic conditions. And what you see now is that is all over the world. We've just seen it now come home and amplified in, frankly, the most important country in the world. But the message has been universal. It's been there. It's been plainly available for, frankly, all of us to see. You know, I mean, like the last handful of days for me has been sheer anger at myself because my job is to see those signals. Yeah, I want to I want to stop you on that because we've been talking about that in the office, too. I keep wandering around the newsroom saying, tell me what signals we missed here. What signals were there? Polls aside, okay, we listened, to, we listened to polls in the office and expected those, but what signal was there that we didn't catch? So I thought of one, which was the um, increases in rates of um, suicide, of death by cirrhosis of the liver, and of drug addiction among working class and, and uh, under non-college educated whites. So it, it, it finally occurred to me, just perhaps it happened a, a few weeks too late, to say like, oh, well, when, when you see that in a city uh, among a population, you do see that as a political signal, as well as a public health mm -hmm. signal and all those other things. And maybe we didn't there. Is that one? Were the, what, what were the other signals that, that passed us? And, and I'd say this, I, I want to make this as a jump to, to another topic, which say, that what, it, can technology help find I'm us? I'm quite skeptical that there was a panacea piece of data here. And, 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 and the, the reason is that all of this stuff is, is it's, it's like you, you work backwards and try to now backfit some data to a narrative that you know exists today. And so that process is not that useful because that same piece of data that you think is directionally accurate today loses value tomorrow. And then you'll look for something else only after some new set of facts come out. So my point is, what we're learning there is not really to look at what the broad-based indicators were. And I'm not sure that is as specific. I think there's like a more general thing, which is like, look, there was a, we've lost a sense of civility and decorum in part because of how we consume, interact, communicate 
online. It's more and more and more of the time that we spend, and it creates a completely different set of values that we as a society have not really unpacked. Meaning, how many things are communicated mostly because of one person's desire to get likes or thumbs ups? And what do you think the ramifications are when you multiply that by 1.7 billion people and the ability and the tendency for one to live in one's own world? That I think is a root cause issue. I think we all knew, for example, when we saw non-farm payrolls, we were conditioned as market analysts and market participants. Great, the first Friday of every month, I'm there and I'm excited to see non-farm payrolls. And at no point did any of us take a step back and say, "Why is every single month re-revised? Maybe this entire thing is just a lie. Maybe the numbers actually are portraying something that we are not seeing." So I think that they were like, "We don't have to get nine levels deep into the data." There are structural, fundamental institutions that exist who share a responsibility to do two things: one is inform and educate, and two is organize. And those institutions need to be rethought in the way in which the world works today, in terms of incentives, in terms of information distribution and consumption. Some of those institutions are for profit. Some of those institutions are not profit. And my takeaway is honestly, people needed a mechanism to voice the fact that whatever is working today is not working. And they used a vote. They, they used. Which is the most powerful way to do it. And and, and in that sense, very very positive. But I think uh, to to pile on what, what Jamath is saying, we've also lost a sense of having commonly trusted curators uh, of information, and that's been a huge challenge. Um, you know, 25 years ago, if you were working in government or if you were pretty much anywhere in the country, you um, stopped what you're doing at 6:30 at night, turned on the National Evening Network News, and you watched uh, Walter Cronkite or you watched uh, the other networks. And the only other thing that everyone pretty much did back then was they got up in the morning, opened their front door, picked up a hard copy of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, or the LA Times, whatever the case may be. And that was the, the, the common source of information and, and a sort of commonly accepted fact base. Uh, and that, of course, is, uh, is gone. And people are trying to make some sense of the, the chaos of information without having necessarily uh, a trusted curator to help them make sense but, of it. But it didn't disappear accidentally. I mean, there were, there were economic factors and there were also political, there were also, there were, there were it's political it's reasons it's that, it, that it went away. Right? Yeah. This, is, this is the tragedy of the whole thing. It's entirely economic. Should we not have understood what was happening in the Rust Belt five years ago? Yes, we should have. But somewhere along the way, ads and clicks got in the way. That's the honest truth. It's the honest truth. Your motivation to figure that out didn't exist. My motivation to listen didn't exist. Facebook's motivation to prioritize that content didn't exist. We're all complicit in what's happening. And what I'm telling you what's happening is not an American phenomenon. It is a feeling of disenfranchisement. It's a belief that socioeconomically systems are failing. And I think that we have to take a step back because that transcends an American issue. It is a global issue, and it's an important one that if you don't figure out how to channel correctly, I think just becomes really volatile. But, like, but Tony, if your job is in part to communicate diplomatically with mm -hmm. other countries and internally as well, and also to, um, to, to voice a... Um, what makes sense about what the United States does? Like, isn't your job the next thing that gets undermined, or the the next person who has your job does it like that? Now that you're not a trusted uh, a trusted curator of information anymore either, right? Is that look? That's part of the problem. But what's fascinating, and it goes to what what Trump is saying, is this is not um, this is not just the United States. To the contrary, this very same conversation, this very same debate, is taking place in capitals around the world, and you have a lot of confused 
establishment figures in those capitals who are trying to understand what's going on um, and are looking for, uh, for a way through and a guidepost through. And again, part of the problem is I think the frame that we brought to analyzing these problems is no longer, no longer valid. But you know, there, all of the different communities have um, responsibility uh, here. And I think coming out here to this source of extraordinary um, progress and innovation, at the same time, we all know what the downsides are. And there has to be some responsibility and accountability uh, for those downsides. Automation, great thing, great products, closed factories, people take it out on, on trade, uh, which is the wrong place to go, I think. But nonetheless, that's had real uh, repercussions. Um, the information revolution that we've been talking about, wonderful thing to get more information to more people in more places um, in real time. Except that at the same time, except for the, comments. We, except, for the except for the polarization and the silos and the echo chambers that that's helped uh, perpetuate. So, and then social media, of course, a great way of connecting people together, but also a great way for all sorts of extreme uh, voices, extreme opinions, extreme views to pull in, to recruit. So there has to be some way of, in effect, uh, taking the innovation, the ingenuity, and the uh, frame of progress that that exists out here, and actually turning it to those problems. But I get that that's I, I get that that would be your your pitch coming here. I don't mean to to, yeah. to, dis, be, to sound dismissive because I, I don't, I'm not, but I get that that would be your pitch to come here and talk to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and innovators. Mm -hmm. But but aren't they structurally set up to only be chasing the economic incentives to answer those kind of questions? So that's that's a, that's a, it's a great question, and in fact, it's exactly part of why we're here. And the short answer is actually. Yes, they are set up that way, but I don't think in terms of human nature that that is dispositive. Uh, because what I found, so the reason that the State Department's out here is we came to the conclusion that we were just not connected enough with the innovation community. Uh, most of the problems that we're working on in foreign policy every day have a technological component to them. The big things we're trying to solve, food security, health security, energy security, there's obviously a technological aspect. If we're thinking about how to do arms control or monitor ceasefires, or educate refugees at a distance. There's a technological component. So we wanted to be better connected, and we started this innovation forum to come out here, to go to other places of innovation around the country, bring the best minds to help us solve a problem, and also to help see what help us see what was coming around the corner. Most of us in foreign policy, for example, are not brought up in this discipline. We don't even know necessarily the right questions to ask. So what was fascinating to me, and we've now been out here uh, almost a half dozen times, and we've established a permanent presence uh, State Department representative here in Silicon Valley, is the thirst and desire for people to actually help solve these problems to be part of something bigger than themselves. I, I really agree with Tony, by the way. I, I, view, I view Tony, and frankly, I view the State Department, actually, uh, and independent of who are Democrat or Republican, but the State Department, in my mind, is like the chief marketing officer of peace and prosperity. Whether it's, you know, th that's their job, right? Their job is to make sure, like, you... We have, we are building bridges, we're building relationships, etc. The thing that Silicon Valley has not understood, and it, it frankly should have been a huge punch in the face as, as after November 8th, is that at the root of peace and prosperity, as we've defined it, is some form of capitalism. And capitalism, the way that it works today, is structurally broken. Because we take a few people here, and we use software, and what we do is we are able to do with 10 people what otherwise was done by 150 or 1,000 people. That's been the and value proposition of the of it, Silicon Valley no, for a long but time. But hold, hold on. It doesn't have to be the value proposition. It was chosen to be that way. So now we have to ask some really difficult questions. What are the true right long-term profit margins in the businesses that we build? 
What are the businesses that we should build? How should we build them? I'll give you an example. But, but, but do you, sorry, but, but yeah. do you think that 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 your your business, particularly within this, the the landscape of all those industries and other industries, as well, what what you're circling around is that you, you can regulate yourself. Like we can make ourselves better because it's better for the world. But that's not that well, that I'm has not, not been the way even, capitalists even, get no, challenged in history, right? I'm not even saying that yet. I think, like for example, somewhere along the way, a capital allocation decision was made along the following lines. Okay. Path A, I'm going to go build some random site where a bunch of dopes can update photos and, you know, waste a bunch of time. Or path B, I'm going to build an amazing new robotic infrastructure that will actually keep some of these manufacturing jobs in the United States. There was theoretically the ability to have that threshold conversation. We didn't do it. Okay. And everyone here in Silicon Valley in many ways is complicit because we chose path A. And we chose Path A because the economic incentive said, hey, wait a minute, if this thing works, all these hundreds of millions of people all around the world will for free be effectively our employees. What in, in, in what universe could we ever build a business on the backs of 1.7 billion people and never pay them? That's a fantastic business. And then when you see the artifact of that success, everybody else follows suit. The capital flows that way. The intellectual capital flows that way. The human capital flows that way. The social capital flows that way. But then the artifact is basically a lot of people who are like, wait a minute, that is not the compact we thought we had. So I do think that there's a conversation we have to have about how do we allocate our time and our money in more productive, constructive ways. And if it means that our EBITDA margins are not 65% and they're 40%, so be it. That may be the grand bargain of the 21st century. And my point is, who helps frame that conversation? Today, that conversation is impossible to have. And as a result, what you have are literally 55 million people left out on the sidelines. That is not right. You know, I, I thought that I was doing my job and doing my best until November 8th. And as a person who grew up in an economically really difficult situation, I look at a lot of those people as my people, and I feel like I completely let those people down. And here I am, and I live my comfortable little life in my halcyon days, and I think to myself, my God, like, I've just, I've betrayed these people. These are my people. My parents are those parents. My parents are not white per se, but they're not college educated. You know, I grew up on welfare, and I see these people. My dad was addicted to alcohol. All of those problems are my problems. I managed to get out, and I did not even see it. I didn't see it. But coming coming from a, a, a long line of, of rabble-rousers and folks who in various times in this country have been followed by FBI agents and stuff like that, as I do, like I would say, you know, I mean, I, I make this crack in my office all the time, like, you know, my family pitched an alternative here, and everyone said no. Like, when, when offered an alternative to, to straight-out capitalism that says there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers, in the history of this country, what we have typically said is, yeah, we're willing, we're willing to go for that. Well, except, except that, no, we had a progressive era in this country. We had, a moment, we had a moment in time when capitalism had been fully unleashed and the rough edges were there and people were being left out, left behind in that deal. And there was a crisis, uh, and a crisis about capitalism. And at that time, we had some folks who figured out that for capitalism to survive, we had to uh, round off those rough edges and make sure that uh, more people uh, were actually dealt in. Uh, and of course, that was in the context of uh, more than 100 years ago. But I think absent the progressive era, I'm not sure what would have happened to capitalism in this country. 
what we're looking at now is, I think, the need for uh, a new notion of a progressive era to do, uh, to do something similar. Um, and ironically, <laughs> the answers that have traditionally been brought to this uh, have come from the traditional left. Uh, the answers that people are looking to now are being defined somehow as coming from the right. But there again, I say that's where the frame that we have is totally wrong for the moment that we're living. Do you think that when you talk to people in Silicon Valley that they're aligned with that and that they have, that when they, do they come back to you with answers or possibilities that satisfy you that like, oh, this is a, this is a move that transcends those old left-right distinctions but still could be something that, that works no, in the modern political? No, they're still stuck in the, the symptoms. No, no, no. They're in this, what is it, the, the seven stages of like, breathing or whatever. They're still in the denial Wait, phase. there's six more stages of grief? Whatever many stages there are, they're still firmly in number one. And look, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to belittle some of what they feel, but I think, again, it's like if you really unpack it, there are a lot of really good, well-meaning men and women who delivered an important message. And it's really, you know, honestly, it is what Peter Thiel said. You have to take what Donald Trump is seriously, but not literally. And when you take him seriously, what you see is a mechanism that people use to air tremendous grievances with structural systems that are broken. But, but let's, I'm even willing to, um, for purposes of this conversation, move away from the, 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 the super outre and, and potentially really scary stuff that he pitched in the, during the campaign and just deal with the economic notions of it. That, like, that, there, that there are a lot of voters out there who saw in him some redress for economic concerns. Even if we just stick to that, mm-hmm. so then what? What then does a, a an industry in Silicon Valley that has, as you say, and I, I'm right with you, primarily focused on making sure that people could share pictures of cats with each other um, for a long time now, then shift? So what, is the, what is the what is the what does no. that transition look like? I mean, look, th- th- this is why like doing my job is so difficult. Five years ago, when I left Facebook, I took all of that capital and I said, okay, I'm going to redeploy it in ways that I felt were productive, healthcare, education, financial services, the systems that are broken. And here's what I can tell you five years onwards. Where we've made the most money is not that. Where we've basically followed every other random doofus here with their stupid incremental investments, we've made enormous amounts of money. And all the things that I've done that I felt like were really needed to do to really help people take twice as long and at least 50% as much money. But I keep doing it. And so I use these other things as a necessary evil to keep us in the game to really fix things, to build things. You know, we're building massive 3D printers. The hope is that if we can do that, you can basically completely start a new manufacturing economy in the United States because you need ultra high skilled people to operate these 3D printers. And these are skills that can be taught in schools and trade schools and what have you. And you can recreate a different form of high value labor. But my gosh, is it hard. And when I go talk to my brethren to try to raise capital for that, they don't want to talk to me about that. They want to talk to me about the messaging company that we led. Because that's easy. That's deflationary. That's 100 people doing the job of 10,000 people. So my point is, I think what now is an opportune time to do is to actually like have a really honest conversation with ourselves about how much profit is too much profit, how much profit is a reasonable amount of profit, how do we actually create systems that do, frankly, make America great in a multi-dimensional context. Because if we just get caught up to your point in just the rhetoric of what existed during the campaign and we don't actually look at the root cause issues here, we're just gonna not, we're just gonna miss it again. 
And there are simple ways to do it, but it'll require some sacrifice. I mean, we looked, we looked down on countries with different political parameters and approaches than a fundamental approach of democracy the way we've defined it. We do, right? So for example, even democracies that we think are too tax heavy, like France or most European countries, all the way to you know quasi-communist situations like China. But all of those people are taking control in different ways, with some success and many failures, of a responsibility to take care of their population. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the cost of that, and are we willing to bear it? So when you, Tony, when you hear that as a, as a representative of the federal government, what, what, do you, what do you say to that? If you, knowing that there's some willingness in Silicon Valley even here among tech entrepreneurs to, to take on those issues, like can you, what, do you hand, what do you give to them as tools? What do you say to them? Well, that the government's in, in, the first instance, in the first instance, I say we need to have this conversation. And the fact that uh, people like Chamath, uh, and I think a few others, because I've heard some, I've heard a few positive things on this on this trip. Uh, they want to have that conversation. It starts there, um, and it also starts with understanding exactly the picture that Chamath has painted. Um, and so, what I hope doesn't happen in this moment is a doubling down uh, on the way we've been doing things and a rejection of from of one group uh, of the other. Um, there needs to be. Not only, uh, you know, when foreign policy, or as Sean said, we're in the business of building bridges to other countries, we need to be doing some bridge building within our own country. Um, and we need to be doing a better job of actually listening to each other and hearing each other and then acting on, uh, on what we're learning. So, you know, yesterday um, I was in the um, Bay Area and we were visiting, we were talking about refugees, which is something that I've been very focused on. And we were talking uh, to some wonderful folks um, at a place called uh, 1951. And what do they do? They train um, new arrivals to this country, immigrants, refugees, to be baristas, right? Now, it sounds, sounds simple. You might, you might laugh at it, but here's the thing. So someone who's just newly arrived from the most difficult circumstances um, has trouble getting a job. They get a job. They have some basic training. They get more than minimum wage. They get benefits. They get a platform. And, that gives, and they get socialized in working in this country. And that gives them a chance. So, but here's the, the, the reason I raise this is, is because the guy who co-founded this operation, he was uh, from somewhere in rural Tennessee and had never met a refugee to save his life. But he was living somewhere else, actually living out here at one point, and he was a barista himself. The guy working next to him was a refugee from Eritrea and told him his story. And he heard the story and it, it connected in a way and it opened his mind and opened his heart to something he'd never even thought about. We have to be able to find ways to generate these kinds of connections and these kinds of conversations within our own country. We were talking yesterday about AmeriCorps. Uh, well, it would be great, I think, to scale that exponentially. Folks who live on the, on the coast ought to be spending quality time, not a day, not a weekend uh, of tourism, uh, but six months, a year, somewhere in the center. Folks in the center ought to be spending time on the coast. And making sure, because when you look at that map, uh, it's it's pretty disheartening. And it's not just a map, that electoral map of the uh, the country and the states are large. Within states, you see the rural-urban divide that's been uh, perpetuated. There have been some some more positive statistics on that, but at least politically, it's. Um, but but these are the structural. Oh. But these these are the sorts of things that are, that 
right now the idea of a federal government coming up with a expanded AmeriCorps program mm-hmm. to have exchange programs between the between the blue and the red. Mm-hmm. I know that we're trying to get past those distinctions, mm-hmm. and I think you're right to to say that those are not the way we should be thinking about it. Now you have a uh, going forward a federal government potentially that's saying, look, we're gonna we're gonna back off of those kind of centralized decisions. I mean, it, it's it's frustrating to me as 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 one of the one of the people in those media who made decisions based on clicks and ads. I don't think I did that, but I think that was the outcome in the end. No, to, it, absolutely, to, it absolutely to, was. To, we should not kid ourselves. To, sure, I mean, I'll, I'll take I'll take that heat, but to but to to think about it in that structure to say like, yeah, well, but part of the pitch was that social media was going to build those bridges, and social media didn't. Social media blew up what bridges were there. The, un- the unintended consequence of progress has been just a, a massive tribalism. And um, I, think, I think what we need to figure out is um, how you allow that to happen, because that's an important thing, okay? Um, but also how you then don't lose signal of what's happening in these other tribes that you don't understand. That's like really the takeaway. But that's been, I mean, maybe this is productive. You know, that's the, the, the State Department... And especially your work there has has been in large measure trying to understand these places that we didn't understand well right. and get to it. What, so what tools exist beyond, like an exchange program makes a lot of sense to me, I, I, with a little bit of hesitation of the, there, it, that has a, a, there's some faint patronizing about that depending on the direction. Look, it doesn't, but, uh, but what else is there? First, this use? doesn't need to be generated by government. Government's not the the source of every every program or every solution. Um, we may we may hopefully have an idea or two. We may be a convener. We may be a catalyst. But I would hope that other uh, communities can also take uh, take the ball and run with it. I, th- I think we're I think we're uh, Donald Trump may have a more uh, open free market sensibility here, which I think could be productive. Is you know, when you think about economies and systems, they all operate on incentives, and economic incentives tend to drive great outcomes. And so, again, like going back to something like where if we say, okay, let's try to create a rebirth of high-skilled, high-quality manufacturing in the United States, how would one do it? I don't think the answer is for governments, for example, to try to set up exchange programs. I do think the answer, though, is the government to create different pathways of capital and funding. So, for example, why do I have to go and carry around a tin cup around... Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road from a bunch of guys who'd rather just waste their time on all kinds of nonsensical garbage. I have an entire team of people building a massive 3D printer at scale that can print rocket ships, planes, wings. We can do that in the United States. I'd rather much I'd rather go to a state governor or the federal government and say, match my dollars. I don't need charity, but whatever dollar you give me, I put in, you match. Let's go and build something. Let's go pick some states. And let's go get in there and actually create some amazing jobs. Let's do that. So those are the kinds of things that I think can happen. And I think if you identify the problem precisely enough, again, as a, as a socioeconomic problem, I think that we can start to address some of these root cause issues and use incentives. And the government has a very powerful mechanism to control incentives. That is one thing that they can create. So the, the, let's, in the, in the vein of getting to the place where we wrap up, that's a, that's a good ask from the government from the side of, of, of business to say, help us out with some incentives that will change the direction. What's the, uh, what's the government ask from the, um, from the entrepreneur side? What do, what do you want to see from that? Well, I think it starts with the recognition of the problem uh, and acknowledgement of the problem. Uh, and then um, thinking in creative ways about how to redirect uh, some of those resources in a way uh, that makes sense 
for folks um, building things, uh, that makes sense for folks creating things, uh, and that makes sense for folks who are, who are trying to make uh, trying to make a profit. But you know, Tremoth makes a good point. How much is uh, how much is enough uh, at some point? Um, but look, I like to believe maybe maybe naively that uh, yes, we have a, um, a, a system that's built on incentives, but there are bottom line ca uh, capital incentives. That's great, important. That's how it's driven. There are also human incentives. And I still believe that um, people, um, many people, uh, want to um, uh, do well, but also do good. And I don't believe that uh, we've, we're past the point where those two things can be uh, uh, divorced and, uh, or at least can't be married together. So, but again, it all starts with recognizing what's going on, recognizing the problem, acknowledging it, and then uh, thinking through some answers together. All right. Well, I'll take the uphill to stop. Tony and John, thank you guys for doing this. Appreciate it. It's been fascinating. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.